Hello, gentle listeners. This episode is one from the archives that we recorded way back when, as a follow-up to Daniel Ogden on Greco-Roman magic. Now, that was a great introduction to the whole thing, but our interview with Sarah Veal on the ancient curse tablets, or defixiones, really deals much more with the Roman period. Now, it's not particularly situated in the 4th century. Indeed, most of the temple-based cursing material we talk about is 1st and 2nd century CE, but I thought it would be great to bring this episode back into the Schwepp timeline, as it's a wonderful counterpoint to the recent discussions of amuletic incantation bowls in Sasanian late antiquity. There are interesting parallels. Firstly, the embodiment of ritual practices in uh, what you might call an object of power, partaken of by both kinds of practice. And this temple-based cursing culture is taking place at the far western frontier of the Roman Empire, which gives us a, a really nice reminder of how vast and diverse magical culture was in later antiquity. So enjoy our interview with Sarah Veal on ancient Roman curse tablets and the cult of Magna Mater. Hello, this is Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And this week, we are speaking with Sarah Veal from York University in Toronto, a woman who knows a thing or two about what are known as ancient curse tablets. So, Sarah, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, what are you working on? <laughs> so... Uh, one of the things I work on are what I call temple-based curses, uh, for lack of a better word, more or less. And these are curse tablets which uh, are found in temple sites, and they use temple infrastructure in some way in, in formulating their curse. So, for example, they might appeal to a temple deity or refer to temple-specific rituals on the curse tablet or use temple infrastructure in some way, for example, by depositing the curse tablet in a spring or a fountain or an offering pit alongside other objects. Okie doke. Now, you say temples. What kind of temples are we talking about? Is this, this the, is Greco-Roman stuff you're looking at, right? It definitely is, and I specifically work on a temple uh, from the first, second century Roman period. In terms of the temple-based curses, they tend to be found in temples related to mother uh, goddesses, mother deities. So, for example, uh, the Temple of Demeter in uh, Corinth and Cnidos, we have some curse tablets from there. We have curse tablets uh, to Solace Minerva from Roman Bath in England. Mm. And I work on a temple in Roman Mines in Germany, uh, where these cursed tablets are dedicated to the goddess Magna Mater. Interesting that goddesses, and not just goddesses, but like big name goddesses, are associated mm -hmm. with cursing. That's something I I'd love to come back to if we can. But before we do that, I'd like to paint a bit more of a picture of the context here. First and second century CE in our era, we're looking at yes. Mainz, which is a modern day German city, but at the yes. time was, I understand, a kind of a frontier outpost of the Roman state, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so it, it was the capital of Germania Superior, which was sort of this area that was part Celtic, part German, 
at the time. It was a military stronghold and it basically an administrative center, but it was located on the frontier. And so from a military standpoint, it was very advantageous in terms of its location because uh, the Roman military could dispatch its troops out of mines uh, north and south along the Rhine River to other areas in, in Germany, which were contested at the time. Okay. So a lot of our listeners, unlike you and me, are not dedicated classics nerds. So <laughs> I'm trying to think like a non-classics nerd, and I'm thinking, why is there a temple, a Roman temple, in Germany dedicated to a goddess from... Uh, I think Anatolia originally, right? The Magna Mater. Yeah. What's going yeah. on here? What's the, some of the backstory of this goddess and how she ended up being Roman and how she ended up on the German frontier? Yeah, so Magna Mater has an interesting history where she's actually uh, brought into the Roman pantheon in uh, the second century BCE as, as part of these wars that were going on. It was believed that if they accepted this Eastern goddess into Rome, then Rome would be victorious. And they certainly were. Uh, but the the cult itself became very contested because the goddess has these priests who practice castration, they practice ritual laceration, they, they shout and they sing and they wail and they howl. And for upper class Roman sensibilities, this was a bit shocking. Now, that was in 2nd century BCE. Of course, over the years, uh, these cults sort of become domesticized uh, to the Roman world. Right. And Later, we find uh, this temple in Mainz is dedicated to both Magna Mater and Isis, who is another what we would call so-called Eastern or Oriental deity. And what we find is that these uh, Eastern cults often move along with the Roman army. So, for example, we have uh, temples to Eastern uh, goddesses in, I believe, somewhere in Switzerland near Basel. Wow. And we also have a similar temple located in Köln. So what happens is once these these sort of domesticized Eastern cults, which are for all, all ostensible purposes, Romans, they start moving with the military in groups together. Right. And so you, you have to think if you were, you know, a native uh, Celt or German living in Roman Germany, when the Roman military comes to your town and they start bringing you uh, their gods and goddesses, you're not actually reading that as being, oh, well, this is some foreign Eastern goddess. Uh, you see this as a very Roman deity. Right. And they, they might do as well. I suppose we can't really say the degree to which, the, or can we, the degree to which a Roman worshiper of Magna Mater would have been aware of her provenance as going back to sort of, is she thought to be a Phrygian deity originally? Where is she from? Yeah, yeah there's this whole, where is she from? Because originally she comes in and she's a rock. Uh, her, her, I believe it's Pessinos. In Asia Minor, where where the rock is exported to Rome from. Right. So the Romans yeah. steal this rock in there. <laughs> this wonderful things that the Romans did of just taking on any god or goddess they encountered if it would help them win battles. And if yeah. it did help them win, they said, okay, this this is now our god. We worship this god now because it won us that particular campaign or whatever. Yeah, and especially this is an important context, you know, in the in the formation of the Roman Republic, where uh, what is Roman and, you know, how we're forming our state borders, both internally and abroad, is a very big issue. So we see at this time that there is a lot of incorporation of foreign deities to basically strengthen uh, Rome's position in the world. That's a, a really, really, well, to say the least, a very different take on 
religion and the utility of religion than we have in the post-Christian West, let's say. Um, uh, and it's wonderful. I hope we can come back to that, that yeah. model of society, that way of seeing the world. So we have this temple. Well, moving 400 years into the future from the adoption of the Magna Mater, the Great Mother, into the Roman pantheon. At this point, she's thoroughly Romanized. She may, I guess it's fair to say she may have a kind of little patina of Eastern oogly-boogliness about her. But basically, she's a Roman goddess. Everyone's familiar with her. Yeah, and, and to make a point on this topic of how, how domesticized she is at this time, uh, the Emperor Claudius is presiding over games to Magna Mater, which uh, the celebration of games to a goddess was a, a religious festival back in the Roman period. He's already appointed an arch gallus as part of the Roman priesthood, so there's this official office of worshipping Magna Mater. And in terms of the Mines Temple itself, it's dedicated by a freed woman who was a slave of the imperial household. And she actually dedicates this temple to the well-being of the emperor and the people of Rome and the Senate. So this is a very thorough uh, Romanized cult by this time. Yeah, totally yeah. legit. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the Gali, because they're kind of amazing. These are the, t the priests, the, I guess we can call them a priesthood class of the Magna Mater, and they have their own yeah. wacky ways of acting and being and stuff, but they wander around, don't they? They're not based in a temple, per se. They're sort of like a moving, movable feast of Magna Mater <laughs> worship. Yeah, for sure. The Galli uh, were itinerant uh, religious professionals. They would provide religious services to the public for a fee, of course. And this could range anywhere from some sort of religious instruction to purification. And we would think like cursed tablets could definitely be part of this retinue of services on offer. The Galli basically during the day, and our source here on this is Apollias' Metamorphosis, where he depicts the Galli going out during the day, going door to door, basically with their begging bowls, begging for money, offering their services, trying to shake down the residents to, uh, to facilitate their lifestyle, basically. And these Galli could also move not just among the town during the day, but they could move from temple to temple in different locations. And what is their lifestyle that they're facilitating? Are they boozing it up? Are they kind of like party guys? <laughs> I, I mean, of know? course, if you, if you read a upper-class writer such as uh, the satirist Juvenal, of course, he's going to claim that they are the most debauched people you'll ever meet on the planet. You know, they are like any other dedicated priesthood. That is their livelihood. They are mendicants in a way. They serve the goddess and their ritual practices uh, may seem strange or may rely on the public to facilitate their lifestyle, but that was part of their religion. Yeah. Um, I just think of the sadhus of, of uh, India, especially northern India, who, who wander around and, and are poor and don't own anything, but they also spend, they smoke dope all day long, every day. They're, <laughs> they're you know, total. But to, to a Western view, they're... they're um, mega stoners, you know, but yeah. uh, of course they don't see it that way. That's not what they're doing. They're doing a sacred practice and they're partaking of the sacraments of Shiva, I suppose, or something along those lines. But the Gali, to get back to them, they did yeah. chop off their own genitalia, did they not? Or is this a rumor? Or what do we, do we know if they really did this? Do we know the deal with the castration? With the castration, so the idea that the Galli castrated themselves comes basically from the myth of Attis. Attis was Magna Mater's consort, and at some point, we have a few different myths of how this goes down, but at some point, Attis is castrated, and it, it becomes a big uh, topos 
in the cult of Magna Mater, this idea that Addis is castrated, he later dies, Magna Mater becomes this raving, uh, mourning goddess uh, who is attempting in any way to get Addis back. And so for what we know, we do believe the Galli were eunuchs and that they practiced ritual castration. But again, this wasn't the only practice which seemed uh, seemed a little strange to the upper-class Romans because, like I said, they, they also practiced ritual laceration. So they would use uh, something that was kind of similar to a cat of nine tails, which had knuckle bones on the end, and they would basically whip themselves into a frenzy and bleed all over the place, which seemed very strange to an upper-class Roman. And, of course, their practices were very emotive as well. Uh, and they were accompanied by lots of lots of singing, lots of music, lots of banging of drums, lots of banging of cymbals. And so this really seemed uh, very exotic to some segments of the population. Of course, for other segments of the population, it was hella interesting and they wanted to be part of it. Although they might not have wanted to go as far as to castrate themselves. They did. You know, you, when someone's willing to castrate themselves for their religion, you definitely get the impression that they're serious about what they're doing. They're doing yeah. something serious. This is no weekend kind of activity. This is a serious thing. Yeah, for sure. So thank you for that. We should actually talk about the curse tablets at this stage. Well, we should. We've created, That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, we've created this wonderful picture of this temple. We know who, to whom it's dedicated. It's Isis and the Magna Mater. Isis doesn't really come into the cursing so much, from what I understand. It's Magna Mater. Tell me about these tablets. Yeah, so I'll just back up and explain what a curse tablet is, because it's mm. very clear to, to you and me what a curse tablet is, but maybe for some people listening it isn't. Uh, so curse tablets are basically these inscribed thin sheets of metal, which are used to influence people or animals against their will by some sort of supernatural means. How this shakes down is if someone had a circumstance that was, say, a little bit out of their control and they wanted to get uh, the upper hand or they felt that they were in need of getting control of that circumstance, what they would do is they would basically write their request uh, to a god or a goddess on a curse tablet and then uh, deposit it somewhere. And, and the idea that by writing the curse tablet and by depositing somewhere, the, the god or goddess would basically hear the request or the prayer and then basically answer it. Hmm. And so how does the depositing work? Uh, well, it's different in uh, different situations. And for me, I really think that the, the ways in which the curse tablets are deposited and especially where they're deposited tell us a lot about the sort of connections these uh, the people who are practicing cursing are making between the efficacy of the deity and uh, their ability to affect specific circumstances. So for example, if it's a sports curse, let's say someone had a favorite team and they wanted their team to win, they might affect a curse on the opposing team and hope that their chariot crashes. Mm -hmm. They might bury that curse tablet outside the arena. Right. The, yeah. the appropriate spot. That makes sense. But at your temple, the Temple of yeah. Mines, we have special fire pits, which is where people tend to deposit their curses. Yeah, and that's what's interesting about the Temple in Mines, is that on, at the temple there's over a hundred fire pits on the premises, 
which were used for the purpose of dedicating offerings to the goddesses. And we find curse tablets were offered alongside other votive objects, such as miniature oil lamps or animals or coins. So it seems to me that people are making a strong connection between other ritual practices at the temple in which someone would make a request to the goddess and offer them a votive object, mm -hmm. as well as the practice of cursing, which once we break it down, the process isn't that much different. Right, yeah, because when you mention votives, of course, I think of, um, okay, here's, a, here's an ancient practice that certainly never died out. So there's lots of churches in the Mediterranean region. I think also this is very common in Latin America, probably mm -hmm. in North America too, where in Catholic churches, say you've got a problem, medical problem, uh, like your leg is, something's wrong with your leg. You bring a little statue of a leg, basically, to the church. Mm -hmm. You leave it there with appropriate prayers and so on and so forth, and a, a given saint who is, presides over legs will hopefully... <laughs> hear you, get to God, say, God, I've got a petitioner, da-da-da, and God will sort you out. Now, in a Christian context, it's hard to see the theological reasons why you have to actually bring a statue of a leg <laughs> for all this to work. But the fact is, people do bring statues of legs to this day. I mean, the, the leaving votive objects in Catholic churches is, a, is alive and well. Yeah, and that's a very similar practice to what we find in the Greco-Roman world uh, with the goddess Sclepius, who was mm. a medical healing god. People would go to the temple of Sclepius, uh, hope to be healed, and if they were healed, they would leave, a if they healed their leg, they would leave a statue of their leg or whatever body part Asclepius assisted them with. So maybe yeah. I've got this backwards. In the Asclepian tradition, you leave the, the votive to show that he did what he was supposed to do. So it's like a thank you gift sort of thing. It, it's not it a, go, here's yeah. a statue of my leg, please sort me out, Asclepius. It's like, Asclepius, my leg feels great, thank you so much, I brought you a leg statue. It goes both ways. Okay. So you could certainly uh, make the offering in the statue beforehand, but a lot of times what we see in uh, other votive inscriptions is they're very contractual. It's, if you do this, then I will do this. So Asclepius, you heal my leg, I will come back and make an appropriate offering to you or a donation to your temple or whatnot. So there is this idea of exchange going on in the votives, which is very much a tit for tat. You do this, I do that. Right. But in the case of the ancient curse tablets, you have this practice of not please heal my leg, but please make the opposing chariot team's horses stumble and break their legs or make my political opponent die. This sort of thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, especially in terms of political opponents. Usually they're asking them to bind their tongue so that when they get to court, they can't speak against them. In terms of votives, we really find the votive language come out, though, in these, these temple-based curses. How do you mean? Is, is, well, when someone makes a curse, say, for a sport curse, it's more of a prayer. It's, please make this happen. What we see in the, in the temple-based curses lends itself more to the votary language of the, you do this, I do that. And we actually see uh, at the curse tablets and minds, people making that, that connection of, if you bring my enemy to justice, then I will come back and make some sort of proper supplication at the temple. Okay. So, the, yeah. so in the surviving tablets, we often have not only the curse, but also the what I will do if you fulfill this. Is that right? In some, ca in in some, some cases. cases. I, I wouldn't want to generalize and say, yes, all of them do, yeah. but we do find it occasionally on the curse tablets. I hope you've painted now a fairly 
vivid picture of what it looked like to do a curse. We haven't talked about the fire pits, really. So these, are, these curses are written on strips of lead, like you yeah. might um, use in roofing, actually. And um, <laughs> some of them are written in a very polished style with good handwriting. Others are just a bunch of kind of chicken scratches, right? So yeah. we have a, a range of literary accomplishment, I guess you'd say, in the people who are writing them. And then are they mm. rolled up? and then thrown into the fire pit to melt? Yeah, so they were, the curse was written on the curse tablet, and then they were rolled and or folded, sometimes both. Sometimes they would be folded and rolled and whatnot, and then they would be deposited in the fire pit. And we know that the fire pit was a big function of this ritual, not just because we found so many curse tablets in the fire pits, uh, but also because the curse tablets themselves are referencing the ritual of depositing the curse tablet in the fire pit. And it was believed that as the curse tablet melted in the fire, so too the curse would be enacted and the affairs of their enemy would similarly dissolve. So the fire melting it activates the, the power of it. But we, mm-hmm. the ones that survived till today are yes. the ones that didn't get burned for whatever reason. So we're actually seeing the presumably the the relics of the frustrated cursors of antiquity, right? The people whose who's ones melted presumably just ended up in a big lead ingot at the bottom of the fire pit. Poor guys. So Sarah, is it magic? Is it religion? Religion and magic both consist of ritual practices. Obviously with these curse tablets in a, well, a temple setting, which is if there is such a thing as a truly religious setting, that must be it, right? It's not a borderline case. It's like a a big temple. It's about as religious as you can get. And people are doing these practices. It's not that I want to ask you so much whether you think it's religion or magic, but how has the debate about these gone? Because I can imagine it being a very keen locus for people trying to decide, is it magic, is it religion? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the reasons I became interested in these these temple-based curses, because there was this interesting paradox there between uh, this thing that was illegal by the Roman legal code, that you could be punished with death if you were of the lower class and caught using a curse tablet. And on the other hand, people seem to be doing it in these very institutional settings. It, sorry, yeah. is, that, is that thing about class actually enshrined in legal code? Lower class mm-hmm. people will not be doing curses. There's literally an exemption for the equestrian class. Yeah, so in the Roman legal code, there's actually two categories of punishment. Uh, one for the honestiores, which are the upper classes, who if they're charged with you know, a capital crime, usually their punishment would be exile, which right. was pretty bad. But if you were a humiliores, you could be punished with death okay. by any of the wonderful varieties that the Roman Empire would kill you with. That's a truly appalling state of affairs, but I th- suppose it shouldn't surprise us too much. No, not at all. Um, so it's not just like one law for the rich, one law for the poor as a kind of metaphor for the way things are. It's like, no, there is literally one law for the rich and one law for the poor in the Roman period. Now, it's illegal to do these curse tablets, but yet it happens on a massive scale, surely yeah. not in a hidden way. Although, I mean, to what degree does the frontier outposty nature of Mainz, is there a situation in which they're saying, well, you know, Rome's a long way away and uh, we kind of get away with what we want here because we're in Mainz? I would certainly agree with that view. We have to keep in mind that the Roman legal code was there. It existed. It outlined what you could and couldn't do. But in terms of how it was interpreted, this was sort of fleshed out in the courts. And in order to really bring a court case in the ancient Roman world, you had to be an upper class person. 
And that feeds into cursing in two ways. On the one hand, we find people of the lower classes using curses to resolve legal issues because they simply didn't have access to a courtroom. And so they're looking to the gods to resolve what are essentially legal matters for them. But it also works in the other way that it's basically up to an individual to determine, you know, whether something is magic, such as in the case of Apollias and the Apologia, and and to what extent it's a crime. And these issues are basically worked out in very local contexts. So for something to happen in mines and someone to be, you know, brought before a Roman tribunal in mines is highly unlikely because it seems the majority of people that were actually cursing in mines were lower class persons that don't have legal access in the first place. Does this same argument hold true as far as you know across the board for like, for example, the temple in Bath? Uh, Is it Minerva Sulis? Yeah, Solis Minerva, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's also about as frontier as you can get, actually. Yeah, so it's pretty far away. Apply. Yeah. Yeah. So it's illegal, but it was going on rampantly. This must surely be a kind of warning to us when trying to interpret the ancient world or any culture where we don't have a lot of evidence of everyday life outside of elite texts like literature and the legal code and stuff like this, that the elite texts are not going to reflect what was really going on necessarily and in fact probably don't reflect what was really going on. And that's really one of the problems that we have with the evidence and the sort of approach that we've taken towards this question of is it religion, is it magic? Because for so long we've, especially you know this, if you're an ancient history or you're a classics person, your training is basically reading elite sources. Right. And for, for the longest time, these elite sources have really been read very uncritically. So whatever Cicero says religion is, people tend to say, oh, that's what religion is. Or what Pliny says is magic, we think, oh, well, that must be how the Romans defined magic. But one of the things I would argue is that we actually need to step back and look at the context. People like Cicero, people like Pliny were actually a very, very small minority of the people who were living in the Roman world. And so when they're talking about what religion is and what magic is, they're talking about what it is for an upper class Roman elite person. And not only does this not include the practices of people like women, foreigners, lower classes, slaves, oftentimes what is defined as not religion or magic are actually these these othered practices. So what you need to study insofar as we can talk about magic versus religion in antiquity, what you need to study is the process by which people marginalize each other, by people attempt to exclude each other by using one or both of these expressions, right? We shouldn't expect to see a lot of across-the-board substance behind an accusation of magic. It tells us about the aims of the person making the accusation more than anything else. Hmm. Absolutely, and and it also doesn't tell us about what the views of the people who were practicing what were disputed practices, how they approached it, and how legitimate they found it. And in the case of curse tablets, it seems that people really saw this as an effective way to communicate with the deity. Just like prayer. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Now, we're probably out of time for our main episode here. Thank you very much, Sarah Veal, for this fascinating window on ancient cursing and stay esoteric. 